From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. It's Women's History Month, and we highlight the record-shattering numbers of women stepping up to run for political office. The president's inauguration is really a big moment over the past 18 months. They are running to do something. There are challenges as well as advantages. I think it was so important to come across as being genuine. The pink wave, what it means, and the future for women in politics. She made Philadelphia history when she unseated a three-term incumbent. A lot of people said, you know, what are you doing? You're leaving a really good job. The city's new controller, her big plans, and why she says she's not afraid of ruffling feathers. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and it's Women's History Month. And to celebrate, the focus is women in politics. Women make up only 20% of the seats in the U.S. House, and they comprise only 22% of the statewide elected offices across the country. And that number is even lower in Pennsylvania, yet there's a pink wave coming, with more and more women taking the plunge. There are reports that more than 500 women have signed up to run for office in this year's midterms, and more are stepping up to take other leadership roles. So what's been holding Holding women back. How do we get more in power? And is this pink wave here to stay? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Veronica Hill Milborn. She's a healthcare executive who became the first African American woman elected to council in Horsham, Montgomery County in 2017. We also have Dr. Michael Hagen, an associate political science professor at Temple University who has expertise in public opinion and elections. And on the phone, we have Chris Yankee. She's a media coach and author of The Well-Spoken Woman. She prepares women to speak on social justice issues and has prepped individuals like the one and only Michelle Obama. Welcome to Flashpoint. Veronica, why did you decide to step out there and to run? This is an exciting time for me. I spent a great deal of time educating myself about the issues in Horsham, and I decided that I could not be critical of others. If I wanted to be part of the change, I had to be the change that was needed. Chris, you help women prepare to step into the light. Why are you seeing more and more women willing to speak out? One of the things that I think is so fantastic about women like Veronica and the women that I work with, they are running to do something rather than running to be something. They're running because they care about an issue and they want to work on behalf of the voters. This isn't some kind of career trajectory, but they want to get stuff done. Michael, can you provide some context for us? How has this shaped politics when you look at it? Because traditionally men have been pretty much the ones holding office, and now you're seeing the shift. That certainly is the case, and there certainly are record numbers, it seems, uh, preparing to run for office, record numbers of women running, uh, preparing to run for office this election cycle, and I think that's Uh, stems in large measure from the terrific energy there is in uh, some aspects of American society right now, especially among women. And uh, I think a lot of women see this as an opportunity to take advantage of that energy and to get into places where men have uh, traditionally been dominant. So what was it? Do you think it was, you know, Hillary Clinton being unable to um, win the election? Was it Donald Trump winning the election? Was it 
you know, the Me Too movement? Or was it all of these things? It was a combination of things. Horsham is predominantly a Republican town. Certainly there has been a great deal of unrest with the the nation, um, with our current president. And so I think that that certainly helped me to be successful in this last election. People sort of were like, look, we need something different. I I believe that that was the case. In fact, on Election Day, I, I worked the polls and that was the common thread that I heard continuously. It's time for a change. We've got to have a whole new perspective. We need more transparency, a representative that is focused on inclusion instead of exclusion. Chris, when you um, deal with what are some of the challenges you see women wanting to talk about, wanting to be more articulate about, and how do you help them do that? Women candidates face both obstacles, but also opportunities. So let me highlight just one of the double standards. When voters are looking at candidates, they automatically assume that a male candidate is qualified if he's seeking a position. Not true for the woman. A woman candidate actually has to prove or demonstrate that she's qualified. And one of the things that's really exciting about this time is that voters are really aching for diverse leaders, people like Veronica, who offer a new direction, you know, in this time of resistance. So that's really exciting for women of color, uh, people in the LGBTQ community who are stepping up, getting off the sidelines and running. Are we seeing this? Because is the, is the public opinion sort of shifting here? I, public opinion is moving at a glacial pace. I think it has a lot more to do with decisions of women to run for office and the kinds of strategies that Chris is describing that uh, that they're using when they're running and the kinds of experiences that, that Veronica is talking about. The Me Too movement has a has a role to play in uh, the story that we're seeing. But the march that took place immediately following the president's inauguration is really the big moment over the past 18 months, I think, that's uh, that's persuaded a lot of women that this is a time to run. This is an opportunity. So many women who were like quietly doing things in their communities and now they're able to run cities, you know, make decisions in, in counties and things like that. What are you seeing, um, Veronica, just sort of beside you? I have worked in the healthcare industry for a number of years, and I've led a number of organizations. So I had those leadership skills. I think part of my campaign effort was talking to my constituents about the things that I've done to be able to highlight my leadership skills. I think it was so important to come across as being genuine and Mm. to promote a posture of complete transparency. People wanted to believe in someone that was going to represent them uh, in the township. As of the first woman of color, I think in 300 years. 300 I saw, years. 300 years. I was like, what was going on 300 <laughs> years ago? You know, yeah. how do you cross the racial lines there and build confidence in that, in that regard as well? People know when they can trust someone. You mm-hmm. just feel it. Yeah. And so I knocked on over 5,000 doors. Go ahead. <laughs> and, and, and I was just very <laughs> passionate. Yeah. I was very passionate about a need for change, my commitment to um, transparency and a commitment for inclusion. Yeah. That uh, Horsham has over 15,000 um, residents, about 7,000 Democrat, another 8,000 Republicans, and, and a couple thousand here or there independents. 
And so my goal was to make sure that people were educated about the issues. I also made sure that I educated myself about the issues and took a a position to represent what were the issues in Horsham. It was about development. It was about the water contamination issues. It it was, again, about uh, transparency, making sure that people had a say on key decisions. That mm-hmm. was what my platform was about. And I think people really appreciated that. Veronica said she ran three times. Could you talk about the, the risk taking that's involved in running for a political office and then sort of the discipline it takes to sort of knock on 5,000 doors that way? Most first time candidates don't win. And so to not be discouraged by that, but, you know, the idea of picking yourself up, brushing yourself off and getting back in the arena. And for all the listeners out there, we also know that women need to be asked to run. Because, again, it goes back to this, Mm. why are they running? And oftentimes men are more likely to see this as part of, you know, their career ambitions. But women don't necessarily see themselves in leadership positions. So if you know someone in your life who you think would be a fantastic public servant, ask her to run, and keep asking until she makes the decision to run. And then when she does, it's important that we're there for these women and supporting them and helping them because knocking on 5,000 doors is not easy. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds like you have some raw knuckles there <laughs> doing, all that, doing all that knocking. And, uh, Michael, could you p- provide some context? I mean, it, does this pink wave, does it resemble any other type of wave that we've had in history? The size of the wave in terms of candidates this time around is larger than any I've seen with respect to any group in the past. It's really quite remarkable. The thing that strikes me about what's uh, being said here is also that people need to understand and appreciate the value of local office and mm. local office as an end in itself and as a stepping stone if you want to make a, a career in politics. I find with my students, they're, they're so frequently focused on the president and on Congress that they underappreciate the, uh, the influence and the importance of local office and uh, how it really is a, an opportunity. You don't need to run a, a multi-million dollar campaign in order to be elected to uh, the school board or to be elected to a city council. Seeing that as a, as a valuable Contribution to make to society is an important element of what I try to teach my students. And one of the things I've said when President Donald Trump won in 2016, I said that will be one of the best things that ever happened to this country because so many people will now become activated and connected into politics because people were just ignoring it. So, I mean, if you think about this, Veronica, it's it's like, do you feel like around you people are activated? Absolutely. People have come out in great forces uh, to share their opinion. Polarization of women with power has just been incredible. You know, I'm a mother of two wonderful daughters, and they have just become advocates in the political arena as well. And I I like to think it's because mom now has taken on an office. So I'm so impressed and energized with the kind of activity and momentum that I'm seeing today. Yeah. And so what are the challenges? Because we do have this momentum, you know, and we see this happening. Chris, when you talk about going for elected office, how do you prepare women to deal with the scrutiny? And a lot of times women are more sensitive to that. The most important thing for them to be able to convey is that they are the right choice and that they're going to work hard on behalf of the voters. And then in addition to that, they need to be, as I was discussing earlier, need to be able to establish their qualifications. Sometimes they get hit with really challenging questions. So being ready for those questions 
and being able to stay positive and proactive, even when they may face some of those double, double standards we were talking about. People saw that double standard when they witnessed Hillary Clinton, the way people treated her versus the way they treated the male candidate. Did that ring true to you? Did you see differences as someone who works in political science? Did you see a difference in the way that, they, that she was treated? And, and what do you think that how did you think that shifted public opinion, Mike? She had to contend with lots of challenges, but one of those, one of the central ones, was that some people treated her differently because she was a woman, because she was a female candidate, and because she and because of her background. And oddly, she had to carry not only her own baggage, but the baggage of the previous president and the baggage of her husband. All of that was part and parcel of what she had to contend with as she carried through her, her candidacy. It seems to me, uh, I mean, one of the challenges we all have to face in this energized environment, it's wonderful that there's so much interest in politics and so much commitment to public service and so forth. But one of the challenges is continuing to talk across the partisan divide, across the ideological divide. People still have to find ways to reach compromises, to talk with one another, to respect one another. And that the energy is uh, Wonderful, but it's making that more difficult in some respect. What are some of the things you thought about, Veronica? Because I feel like women have to be very particular about the way they dress. Because people make a lot of judgment and value choices, I think, about women based on things like that than they do about men. Well, I've dealt with it all throughout my career. I remember watching Hillary Clinton, and she never responded with emotion. She was always cool, calm, and collected. And I've always felt that it was important for me to be able to articulate a position without emotion, but to make sure that I came across as a credible uh, candidate, both, you know, during my campaign and also uh, professionally. Uh, To your point, um, and I think Chris mentioned this, that it's so important to have a, I guess, an elevator pitch. You have a few minutes to convey an uh, an important point to make sure that people believe you, that you grab their attention. And so I I think that's both a skill and an art. And that's what I've I've tried to, you know, uh, uh, capitalize on throughout my career. Yeah. And and what is your advice to women, Chris, in that area? Because people, the public, and there's a whole segment of the population that just uh, refuses to acknowledge that women can be leaders. How do you prepare women to overcome and to deal with that type of ingrained social socialism that you've been socialized in a certain kind of way? One of the things that we saw in the presidential campaign and some of these other races that have been running, happening around the country is it's often older white women voters who are not supporting women candidates. So we need to be talking to those women and finding out why that is. And I think people are in the process of doing that. And I just want to go back to something that you raised earlier, Mm -hmm. this double standard about a women's appearance. Yeah. Because this is a real issue. And one of the things that we've learned from research, and there's a fabulous pollster in Washington, her name is Celinda Lake, and she's looked at this. Women need to call out bias any type of bias, and particularly when it focuses on their appearance, because when the media talks about how they look, Mm. that hurts a woman in the eyes of voters. The description can be negative, positive, or neutral, but when the media writes about a woman's hemline or her heel height, 
voters think it's the woman's fault and she's purposely drawing attention to herself. So it's really important for candidates to flag that type of sexism or to have somebody else who can call out that type of coverage. So as we wrap up this discussion, I want to give each of you 15 seconds. Will we see more? Do we need to see more? And do you think we'll ever get to full equity 50-50 in political office and in leadership? And um, I'll start with you, Michael, and we'll end with you, Chris. There's actually pretty definite and conclusive research that uh, demonstrates that Having women in elective office makes a difference in the kinds of policies that government pursues. And so electing women, uh, more women to legislatures and to executive positions will change the policies of government. Veronica? Uh, I would love to see more women step up and uh, become active in politics. I think that women need to be prepared to face a number of challenges. But one of my models has been failure is not defeat until you stop trying. So they need to continue to put themselves out there. All right. Last word, Chris. The good news is there are record numbers of women running. We have 80 women who have announced that they're going to run for governor this election cycle. Currently, there are only six women who serve as governor. And in the history of our country, there have only ever been 39 women governors ever. So the great news is we've got these women running. But even with all the women who are currently running on the, for Congress, they make up less than a quarter of all the likely congressional candidates. We've got a lot of work to do, and it's really important to step up and help these women like Veronica who make the courageous decision to run. Thank you so much to Veronica Hill Milborn. Thank you to Dr. Michael Hagan. And thank you to Chris Yonke for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, she's not afraid of ruffling a few feathers. I'm working for the people of this city, and that's why I ran for office, and none of these people can do anything to me. I'll tell you three ways a barrier-breaking political outsider is planning to shake up things as usual in city administration. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one issue that's getting more and more voters hot under the collar is the number of women who serve in political office. As of this year, Pennsylvania ranked 49th out of 50 when it comes to female representation in office. But one woman is blazing trails in the city of Philadelphia. Rebecca Reinhardt smashed a glass ceiling last November when she was elected the city's first woman controller ever. Unseating incumbent Alan Buckovitz, wife, mother, and former city treasurer brings years of experience and is shaking things up. Rebecca, welcome to Flashpoint. Congratulations to you on making history in Philadelphia. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yes. How does that feel? Did you realize? I mean, you probably realized it, but when it happened, what went through your mind? It was was an amazing feeling. I mean, it it is an amazing feeling. It's it's an honor just to be able to go up against someone that I wasn't expected to beat (laughs) and uh, and to win uh, my first time running was such an amazing experience to have that level of support from people. What do you think your win says about Philadelphia politics? I think people are ready for change. Uh, The city has so much going for it and growth in certain areas, but the political landscape has stayed pretty stagnant. And people want change. People want elected leaders that don't just represent the sort of insiders that have been in office for decades. 
And I think that my run for office tapped into that feeling. Yeah. And I want to take a step back because I don't want to presume that all of our listeners know what the controller does. Could you explain that? No, that's a really good question. Uh, The city controller is the financial watchdog of the city. Generally, the role of the controller is to make sure that taxpayer dollars are well spent. Mm hmm. Um, It's through the audit function and also uh, there's a general provision to the city controller has the obligation to make sure that the city is running efficiently and effectively. So it's a separately elected position from the mayor or the district attorney. So you have your eyeballs on the coins. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I spent about nine years working for the city before I decided to run for office and as city treasurer and then as budget director for the city. I just saw uh, many things that could be done better in terms of money spent in better ways. Everyone's paying taxes and we, you know, everybody deserves the the best services possible. Now, you're from Philadelphia. I am from the Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Abington. I went to uh, Abington High School. Oh, awesome. And yeah. you're a mom. I am a mom. I have a daughter in second grade. And it's just been a great experience yeah. sort of running for office and, you know, being a mom as well. You were inside a city government kind of looking at this role. How do you view your role now that you're in it versus being in part of the city watching mm-hmm. The past controller do what he did. The reason that I decided to run for office uh, and I uh, was uh, the chief administrative officer for Mayor Kenny when I decided, which is a cabinet position, when I decided to resign and run for office. And while I enjoyed working for two mayors, I worked for Michael Nutter as well. I felt like I wanted to have a stronger, more independent voice. And the city controller role just makes so much sense for me because I have a financial background and I know the budget. I worked on Wall Street for a number of years. So uh, I looked at the city controller role and said, wow, I could really do something with that. I could, um, I said on the campaign trail, I could save uh, at least $10 million a year. And I think that's low. Um, I think the city needs to do much better uh, with transparency and releasing information to the public. And there's a, a wide variety of things that I looked at the role of city controller and said, I want to have an independent voice from the mayor, any mayor. Mm -hmm. And that's a way for me to accomplish that. When you came into office, uh, there was a shakeup, which happens whenever Mm -hmm. there's a new leader. Explain it. Sure, sure. So when I won the general election in November, uh, I set up a transition team of people. The controller's office has about um, 135 employees, and there were about like 35 to 40 at will. The rest are union. Mm -hmm. So... We looked at the at-will employees, and there was a process um, to see if uh, their skill set— basically, everyone had to reapply. Yeah. And, you know, there were definitely uh, changes made from that process. The org structure changed under me. I changed the org structure. So uh, there were um, about 10 or so uh, people let go, um, a bunch of people brought on. I think uh, the way I look at it is I need to— set up an organizational structure and have key people that can accomplish the vision that I want to accomplish. It might ruffle a few feathers, but, you know, I'm not beholden to anyone politically. So tell me what you're most excited about. I'm most excited about tackling issues that haven't been tackled, saving the city money, perhaps, and also uh, really having a great impact. For example, I announced my first two performance audits, an audit of the behavioral health function of the city which is over a billion dollars a year and hasn't had a a thorough review um, as long as anyone can remember. And so with something like that, for example. With the opioid crisis. Well, right. 
It's right. like front and it's, center. It is, right? So the, the op- mm-hmm. opioid crisis and even just the trauma of gun violence throughout the city mm. that we're getting over a billion dollars a year in city and state and federal money combined that is given to various different nonprofits who are supposed to be providing services. Are those services being provided in an effective manner? How are we selecting the nonprofits? If there's money being wasted, then we can redirect it to the opioid crisis. And that's a type of way that most people don't think about the city controller. But the city controller, through this audit function, can really um, have an impact on people's lives. So that's one example. And the other is I... Uh, announced and started an audit of the city's sexual harassment, sexual misconduct policies, procedures, which I think the city has has an issue there. I started to ask some questions about, well, how does the city handle this? It's like there's these allegations and then does anything really happen? The city settled related to a police department case about a month ago for $1.2 million related to sexual assault in within the department. What that shows is that there is some real issue around how the city handles complaints and how it resolves them. So that uh, audit uh, aims to to look at that and uh, will be done in the next three months. So you're going to have some big announcements coming. Yes, I, uh, <laughs> I I think so. And I hope so. And I really just want to, you know, I want to raise my voice and, and speak for people. Yeah. And so what kind of keeps you up at night? I sleep pretty well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Good but, for you. Yeah, but no, uh, uh, sometimes I don't. But just... The magnitude of the role. And for me, in order to do what I want to do, I'm definitely going to upset some powerful people. And I don't mind that. Um, but it does. I do think about it, whether it's the parking authority that I'll um, be taking on as well, related to you know the lack of money going to the school district from the parking authority. All of the issues that I want to take on are issues that elected leaders in the past in Philly have stayed away from because of the political implications. So every once in a while, I uh, I think, what am I doing? <laughs> but then I say, no, I'm working for the people of the city, and that's why I ran for office. And none of these people can do anything to me. You know, I want you to talk to women for a second. Sure, because yeah. in a lot of ways, you're an example to a lot of women who have, you know, been on the fence. Right. Was there a reluctance you had to overcome initially and sort of talk to women about how do you yeah. overcome that? When I first decided to run for office, it was a scary thing. I mean, putting yourself out there. Absolutely. And the person, you know, I ran against the incumbent had been in office for three terms. He was a state rep before that. Yeah. He'd been in office since I was in high school. And to say, I'm going to go up against a long term incumbent and I've never run for office before because I think I can do a better job. A lot of people thought it was crazy. And a lot of people said, you know, what are you doing? You're leaving a really good job to take this chance. And I said, but people deserve a better government. Like, I want to do it. And you have to be okay with the risk of failing. That's what I, before deciding to run, had to sort of acknowledge and say, okay, I might, I might lose, and then it's a, it's a public loss, you know. And that you can't find. <laughs> I tried to find some people who who tried and didn't. You can't find them after. It's like it, it hurts. Right, it hurts absolutely. I mean, it hurts when there's a, a you know when there's a disappointment. That's a private thing, you know. It, it, so, so I had to get comfortable with this idea. It's not the end of the world, and I think that to me was like sort of the the stumbling block that I had to overcome. 
in order to throw my hat in the ring. Okay, and my last question for you is, what is your advice to those women? Because there's momentum that's building. You know, give me the absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, women really uh, need to run, and if you're thinking about it, women should do it. Where we are today with women representation in government is just so not okay. Philadelphia's never had a woman mayor. Pennsylvania's never had a woman governor. Pennsylvania's never had a woman senator. We need women to run. And um, I've spoken to many women that are thinking about it and happy to speak to women that are thinking about it because I think that the network of having women in office that that help women to run is really important. So, Rebecca, I would want to say congratulations again to you. I look forward to coming Thank to the you. press conferences oh, that you wonderful. Hold. I'm excited. And uh, we appreciate you coming on Flashpoint. Thank you so much, Terry. It's great to be here. Next up, she's fast becoming a queen maker. We look for the woman that has the passion, the drive, and the know-how, and we're going to refine those skills. How a millennial-run nonpartisan group is bucking the political establishment one crown at a time. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. And to close out our Women's Empowerment Show for Women's History Month, our change maker of the week is She Can Win, a nonpartisan program that trains and supports women who want to pursue civic leadership. With me in the studio to discuss this innovative program is founder and CEO, Jasmine Sessions. Jasmine, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. And so, first of all, you know, I had an opportunity to meet you talking about this program um, before. But for those of folks out there who haven't heard about what you do, please explain. We were started in 2014. So kind of before the whole wave came, we were um, training women and we trained them on the A to B of running for office. So that's everything from like petitions, fundraising, field, branding, communications, everything that you would need. When you graduate our She Can Win training program, you'll have your campaign plan ready to launch a full-fledged campaign. And we are open to all women. We're, like we said, completely nonpartisan. So we train Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Green Party, Tea Party, all together in one training. Why did you decide to start this organization? Everyone asks me that because I never want to run for anything. (laughs) I I don't. I want to make queens. I don't want to be the queen. About six years ago, a woman had come to me to ask me would I help her fundraise. And I was kind of like, I've never worked on a woman's campaign. At that point, I had done seven campaigns and never worked on a woman's campaign. So I started looking around and I was like, there aren't a lot of women. I wonder why. I was in grad school. So I did my research on why women don't run for office. And what did you find? They said they had trouble fundraising. They had trouble getting mentors. They had trouble just finding a support unit and figuring out the uh, work-life balance was extremely difficult for women in the political industry. And they only let a certain amount in. Yeah. Forget if you're a woman of color. You're not getting in. I started asking and doing interviews and saying, well, what are the things that we could do to kind of open up the barriers? And women were like, well, I don't even want to ask questions because, you know, people deem you as dumb and unworthy. So I wanted to create a safe environment where women could learn the skill set to run for office. And then when they're coming, they're equipped with the right tools to come to the table and launch a campaign. And I did it once and 12 women signed up. Two of them ran for office in one. I did it again. 26 women signed up. Four of them ran. Three of them are still in office. 49 women signed up the third time. 
And that's when I knew this was something bigger than me, bigger than what my initial idea was. That's amazing. And you kind of helped make rain. In the last four years, um, my company, we've raised about $3.2 million for candidates. Go ahead, girl. Yeah, I, I am the money person. That's I'm not good at a lot of things, but fundraising is, is my particular skill set. She Can Win is right in the middle of the pink wave, they've been calling it. The pink wave. We came a little early, but by the time the wave is here, I feel like we are prepared to help the next wave of women get into office, not only get there, but stay there. That's the most important part that people Mm. miss. It's hard to get into office, but it's it's not that hard. Staying there and actually being effective and figuring out how to work across the aisle and move legislation through the House and the uh, city That's the challenging part, and that's something that we're developing out now. We got the model down to train the women to run. How are we keeping those women in office and helping them be their best selves there? Yeah. That's the next wave. And actually dealing with all the barriers that you mentioned. There you go. Um, So give me a couple of women that you've helped and are now in office. So Morgan Cephas is like our uh, She Can Win shining star. I, I met Morgan. You met Morgan? Yeah. Morgan was not the party pick. They did not anoint her. Morgan said, it's my time. I'm going to learn and I'm going to go. And Morgan already had lots of experience. Mm -hmm. But when she came and uh, she came through the She Can Win program and when it was time to launch her campaign, she was ready. Uh, So her slogan is ready day one. She's a state representative. She's a state representative. Mm -hmm. And she's young. Morgan's a millennial as well. I think Morgan's 32. So Mm -hmm. she's a young, young lady and knocked every door in her district three times. Those are the kind of women that are not necessarily the party's pick, but still have that passion to lead. And Morgan's doing great things in those state houses. We are picking women. And I want to be very clear. If you are the party's pick, by all means, come. It's even easier. Sometimes you got to do it without the party, especially as women of color, because that's where we put a stronger focus in active recruitment of women of color. We are the backbone of specifically the Democratic Party, and we are we are sometimes very much ignored. So She Can Win has a specific focus on women of color. That's why you're a change maker of the week right there. <laughs> Before we go out, tell people where you're from and why you have become... And are growing into this queen maker. I'm a kid from South Philly. You know, I come from a two-parent household of educators. I don't come from politics, but they always said, if you see something, do something. If you want to make a change, do something. So I credit a lot of that to my parents. I'm a mama and a wife really first before any of that. And I want to make a better world for my girls. Tell people where they can find you. www.shecanwin.net. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is She Can Win Now. Now. Ladies, step it up to Jasmine Sessions, founder and CEO of She Can Win. I look forward to following you. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As tech executive activist and lean-in author Cheryl Sandberg once said, In the future, there will be no female leaders. There will just be leaders. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.